0: Just after 9 o'clock on a Saturday morning, and that must mean it's time again for Money Management with Opus 111 Group's Mike Mail. Here's Mike. Good morning. Welcome to the latest episode of Money Management powered by the Opus 111 Group. My name is Mike Mail. We're all set for another hour of financial news, a recap on what's been going on in the economic world, and most importantly, how it all affects you. We'll be discussing items that popped up on our radar this week, but if you have a question, a concern, or a topic you'd like us to address, please drop me a line at info at opus, O-P-U-S, one group dot com. Well, once again, another interesting week in the marketplace. The Fed certainly uh, reared uh, their collective ugly heads, nothing personal to be sure, uh, and uh, have caused uh, the, the global markets to have a little bit of a dither. So let's see what the numbers all close with. Uh, none of them too positive. As a matter of fact, there was a distinct rouge tinge to the indices on Friday. The Dow ended down 1.6 percent. That was 486 points at 29,590. S&P off by 1.7 percent at 3693. The Nasdaq closed lower by 1.8% at 10,867. The Russell 2000 got whacked. They were down 2.4% at 1679. Gold dropped. We'll be talking about that in a little bit. Uh, It's at 1652 an ounce. Silver lower at 1882 an ounce. Crude also lower on recession concerns at 78.86 a barrel. 10 year Treasury ticked up to 3.68% and soft white meat up just a bit at 961 a bushel. Well, the third quarter is coming to an end next week, and there's going to be a few uh, important economic reports that we'll be looking out for. Tuesday, we'll get the latest on durable goods orders and new home sales. Thursday, we get another on the jobless claims, uh, updated jobless claims. And uh, the Feds will be updating the uh, Let's see, it'll be the third uh, of three uh, on the GDP growth for the second quarter. And, you know, last month, uh, the Bureau of Economic Affairs said that the economy contracted at 0.6% during the second quarter. And we'll see if that gets revised. And then Friday on Friday, the PCE numbers, that's the uh, Fed's preferred measure of inflation will come out. And we'll see just which way that's trending. And then, uh, just as an aside, oil dropped Friday uh, as global growth concerns uh, hit the panic mode in a lot of places because the central bank commitments to fight inflation by dropping their interest rates. They're following the Fed's lead of earlier this past week. It seems that the banks are poised to remain aggressive with their rate hikes, and that's going to weaken both economic activity and the short-term crude demand. Uh, Quincy Crosby, she of LPL Financial, uh, had this to offer. She said, this is a global macro mess that the market is trying to sort out. And I think she hit that straight up. The market has been transitioning clearly and quickly from worries about inflation to concerns over the aggressive Federal Reserve campaign, unquote. And Goldman Sachs' David Costin had a note, and he said, and I'm quoting, based on our client discussions... A majority of stock investors have adopted the view that a hard-landing scenario is inevitable and their focus is on timing, magnitude, and duration of a potential recession and investment strategies for that outlook, unquote. So, and that's the name of that song. Now, I want to, uh, well, we'll be talking about investing and the economy and inflation and things of that nature throughout the hour. But uh, right now, I want to start with the economic reports because there were a couple that were of interest, I think. Housing starts were up. That was a surprise to a lot of folks. Up 12% from last month. (laughs) The estimate was uh, for an increase of 0.3%. So you could say better than expected for sure. Um, And then despite relatively high mortgage rates, labor shortages, and ongoing supply chain issues, that's what we got. The best news was that single family construction was up 3.4%. That was the first gain in six months. Now, the CPI, Consumer Price Index, uses rents to create its estimate of what they call homeowners' housing costs. In other words, what they call it, owner's equivalent rent. That calculates the imputed rent or what a homeowner would have to pay each month to rent their own house. And because rents have been rising strongly over the past year, these increases are just now feeding into the CPI and other inflation measures. There's a delay from that happening. Plus, it was, again, like other things the government did, artificially subdued, and now the market is seeking its own path. Excuse me. Lawrence Young, chief economist for the Realtors, said this. The housing market is showing an immediate impact from the changes in monetary policy. That's interest rates by the Fed, and uh, he said he's going to uh, revise his annual sales forecast down further due to the higher mortgage rates. And, uh, you know, when you do the math, it's not really hard to see why home sales have slowed down so rapidly, and that's one of the things that the Fed has been trying to do with the higher rates is, again, slow down the economy. If you put down 20%, the rise in mortgage rates and home prices since December has amounted to a 48% increase in your monthly payments on a new 30-year mortgage for the average median existing home. So again, the inventory for existing homes remains pretty tight. Uh, Available listings down slightly in August and flat from a year ago. So the trend is not necessarily in our favor right now. And yesterday, uh, central banks all around the world uh, followed the leader of uh, the Federal Reserve and have raised their primary uh, lending rates to, well, fight the effect of the dollar, which is so strong, as well as rising inflation uh, in their markets as well as other markets. And, of course, our yields, government bond yields, uh, rose uh, in concert. You know, inflation is really a hidden tax. You won't see it on anything. It won't show up on statements of any kind, but it undermines work, your living standards, investments, and it's a nightmare for future planning. See, interest rates don't determine inflation. The amount of money flowing around circulating in the economy is what determines inflation, and that's where the problem lies. You know, a, a CPI report, uh, again, Consumer Price Index Report, is old news by the time it's released. It's one of those lagging indicators. But the whole point of tightening monetary policy uh, by the feds is to increase the demand for money and or decrease the supply of money at the expense of other things. So tighter monetary policy today uh, is tries to... Uh, Balance the supply of money with the demand for money, and that's what will deliver low and stable inflation going forward. Higher interest rates increase the appeal of holding cash and cash equivalents, but at the same time they discourage the borrowing and spending of money, and so that tends to de- depress prices. Unfortunately, nobody knows, and not even the Fed, how high interest rates will have to rise, or or how long it will take in order to slow and ultimately reverse the recent rise in inflation. So we, and the Fed, must rely on the old-fashioned methods, such as watching prices. Continuously rising prices are definitely a clear signal that interest rates are too low and or monetary policy too easy. Falling prices, on the other hand, if widespread anyway, are a pretty good indicator that monetary policy is gaining traction and thus helping to bring down inflation such is the case today. So far this year, we've seen significant declines in a number of prices and markets, significantly stocks, commodities, and foreign currencies. So <laughs> there has been an effect, and it will have a, a, a continue to have an effect. But, you know, if interest rates were the cause of inflation, we would have seen inflation from 2008 to 2015 when the Fed funds rate was zero for seven years. But we didn't have any. That's why fighting inflation with higher interest rates really doesn't make a lot of sense. It's, as I suggested, about money supply, not rates. You can never gauge the markets using any single variable, but if I had to rank them in terms of importance, inflation would get more first place votes than interest rates for sure. Now, if you've already accumulated financial assets, the volatility we're having is the other side of our 10-year-plus extraordinary gains in the U.S. stock market. Either way, it's important to remember that volatility is a feature of bear markets, and there's nothing you can do to control that volatility. But what you can control is how you react to volatility. So, uh, you know, just kind of keep that in mind as you're looking at the prices. And there's no law that says you have to look at the prices every day. Uh, it's probably disadvantageous to do so, uh, other than <laughs> increasing your angst, I think. Now, in this segment, we're going to be talking about the Fed and interest rates primarily. And um, so please keep that in mind uh, and see if I hope this some of this will uh, clarify some of what's been going on here of late. Now, uh, as I said, the interest rates. The Fed did raise interest rates as widely expected, by three quarters of one percent or seventy-five basis points. Just the same way of saying the same thing. That was its uh, third rate hike in as many meetings, and the range for the overnight Fed funds rate is now three percent to three and a quarter percent. That's the highest it's had short-term rates since '08, which is. You know, not, that's really kind of just superfluous, but anyhow, that's how these guys give out data. The Fed Funds Rate addresses the rates that banks charge each other for overnight lending. But it also goes through to many consumer-adjustable rate debt instruments, such as home equity loans, credit cards, auto financing, and the three-month T-bill, if you want to uh, you know, kind of track what that will be, uh, is kind of a good proxy for the Fed Funds Rate. And, and you know, with higher rates, your credit card rate rate will rise. Uh, and rates now are at the highest since 1996. So there's a direct connection to the Fed's benchmark. And uh, that means anybody who's carrying a balance on their credit cards will soon have to put out even more money just to cover the dang interest charges. Mortgage rates are already higher. I think I saw they're at 6.7 now. Um, adjustable rate mortgages and home equity lines also tied to the prime, and uh, but 15 and 30-year mortgages typically are fixed, Uh, so you won't see a, uh, well, in terms of your existing loan, no difference, but you'll see uh, they will rise again with regard to the treasury yields. And car loans, too, and even though the loans themselves are fixed, payments are getting bigger because the dang prices are rising along with the interest rates on the loan, so you've got a lot of things to consider about this. Now, even though the increase was widely predicted, uh, and you could say in the market, (laughs) the market didn't take the news very well at all, Uh, if anything, uh, participants were surprised by the Fed's seeming resolve because the Fed said, and I'm quoting, the committee is strongly committed to returning inflation to its 2% objective, unquote. Now majority of the Fed members see the target range for rates getting as high as four and a half to four and three quarters percent next year. That's a really a big increase from here. And interestingly, the Fed sees itself cutting rates by twenty twenty four. So next year may not be a lot of fun, is kind of what they're suggesting, I think. Uh, but most Fed members see the target for Fed funds at two and three quarters to three percent by twenty twenty five. So, in other words, it's going to cut rates once inflation and the economy start to fall. And to reiterate what Mr. Powell said on Wednesday, I wish there was a painless way to do this, but there's not. Now, the futures market says uh, they're expecting a fourth three-quarters of a percent rate hike at the next meeting on November 2nd, which is less than a week away from the midterm elections. Now, it's not just higher interest rates that is messing up things, there's also quantitative tightening. Now, in America, that means the Fed is working to reduce the balance sheet that it's got out there. Now, what's happening is that the Fed is allowing all those treasury and mortgage-backed securities to roll off its balance sheet. matter of fact, the Fed doubled the value of bonds that will roll off to $95 billion this month. And it's, that's probably affecting the bond market as well because the yield on the 10-year treasury reached an 11-year high. Uh, and it wasn't just because it was this week. You know, One noticeable change the Fed made to its forecast is that it sharply reduced its outlook for our economy. In June, the Fed saw the U.S. economy growing by 1.7% this year. Now they only see growth of 0.2%. Their statement said that recent indicators point to modest growth in spending and production. They also said that ongoing increases in the target rate will be appropriate. In other words, the interest rate that they would uh, charge. You know, supply hasn't been able to keep up with booming demand, and that's a dynamic that's been f- fanning the flames of inflation. And the Fed economists, the Fed, excuse me, Fed forecasts uh, were a very different story with changes across the board from an economic perspective. Again, Fed seems growth um, slower. Unemployment rising faster and inflation running slightly higher through the remainder of this year and throughout next. So this forces the Fed to make a choice. Do they focus on supporting the weakening economic outlook or prioritize the fight against inflation? It looks like the Fed has prioritized the fight against inflation and it remains pretty optimistic about how quickly it's going to get under control. But the stock market doesn't always make sense, especially when it comes to interest rates. You know, maybe interest rates seem to matter right now more because investors got used to them being so low for so long. And I think that's a lot of what's going on in the marketplace in general in terms of people's attitudes. I mean, we had a 11-year-plus run of positive stock markets without a break. Uh, interest rates were down to zero for, you know, multiple years, and now it's well kind of revert the interest rates are starting to revert to the norm they're not being artificially held down, and the stock market is responding to that simply by correcting you know that's normal stuff, but because folks haven't either ever been through it or have vague memories of what that looks like, they're having this um highly uh, uh oh gosh i don't even know how best to say it, but an overly negative response to what's going on. That's my opinion. Now, um, interest rates, you know, the the market does well when interest rates were rising in the past. I know because I've been there, and yet the market has tended to perform poorly when inflation is higher. Interest rates were in decline since the early 80s until just recently, and, and that definitely helped support bond prices. But for three decades prior to the early 80s, Interest rates were generally rising throughout that period. And nominally, in other words, on just the numbers, the stock market did okay in the 70s. Stocks were up 5.9%, even as interest rates were breaking into double-digit levels. However, the inflation was at 7.1% per year, and that lasted for over 10 years. So stocks were down on a real return basis. So as I say, it's all contextual, you know. 7.1% 7.1% inflation for 10 years is a whole lot different than 8% for a few months. But uh, people are acting as if this is, you know, the world is ending, and I think they're kind of taking it out of context. But the biggest difference between the 50s, 60s, and 70s, uh, inflation was just 2 and 2.3% in the 50s and 60s. And uh, again, so interest rates were going up, but uh, the returns were pretty good. So just to say things are going to be terrible because interest rates are rising is a not accurate statement. You know, as I say, the last bad market we had was about 15 years ago. And oh, by the way, the end of the quarter is upon us. Next week will be the end of the third quarter. And please understand that a lot of these professional money managers, the uh, 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 mutual fund people, the uh, retirement plan folks, uh, all these folks who run big money, they're graded on how you do quarter to quarter. So, they're going to be doing some transactions that will try to uh, protect whatever gains they have and so on and so forth so this next week may be a little more bumpy than usual as they try to get themselves uh, positioned for the best possible result. So, and again understand too that all the comments from well, most of the comments from the TV talking heads and other uh, media that you may read, are designed toward very short-term responses. You know, buy this stock, be in this sector, what have you, because it will likely have a short-term response. But for those of us who are long-term investors, um, that's just information and does not need to be worked on, I assure you. And let's see here. So let us get back to the, uh, you know, there's only been one safe haven this year, (laughs) and it's not treasury bonds not the yen, and gold has been a joke. It's been the U.S. dollar. The dollar is the safe haven, and money is flowing into that safe haven, so what else is going on in the world? Well, the dollar index hit its highest level since May of 2002, just yesterday, and so until we start seeing some dollar weakness, stocks or crypto will also have to continue to battle that strength. Now, as an advisor... Our job is to not just tell, well, give people guidance as to what we think is best for them, but also to say things, "Eh, don't do that. Uh, You know, this may not be to your best interest. I just wrote, not just, I think it was maybe a month ago now, an article for the Spokane Journal of Business about gold. And I want to touch a little bit on what I wrote because I think it's relevant to this. And I don't want folks to be... uh, Having misconstruences about gold being a good thing in inflation. Now, this, and I also got a bunch of this information from the Wall Street Journal. So, the most actively traded gold futures contract has now declined for six consecutive months. It's had a loss of 16% through that period so far. Now, that's a significant drop for an asset that's supposed to be a haven and marks the longest losing streak since September of 2018. Gold prices generally are off about 20% from the all-time levels they hit in August of 2020. Now, historically, gold has been prized by those investors uh, for its supposed stability during times of turmoil. Well, prices jumped near their nominal all-time highs for gold earlier this year. In early March, it settled at uh, $2069 an ounce. And now it's down about 9.5% so far this year. That's its worst annual performance since 2015. Now, the volatility in the markets is another example of how the Fed's aggressive rate rising campaign is shaking up all corners of the financial markets. Last week's report that inflation remains high, all but cemented expectations that the interest rate hikes are going to continue. So why does that matter for gold? Well, those nervous investors who want safe, boring assets don't favor just gold. Many of them also like to scoop up those treasury bonds. Now, Tai Wong, who's senior trader at Horatius Precious Metals in New York had this to offer, he said that the outlook for gold remains vulnerable until the Fed stops hiking rates. J.P. Morgan Chase and Company analysts say that for gold prices will keep falling, averaging $1,650 an ounce in the fourth quarter, uh, which wouldn't be down too far from here. But anyhow, still lower, and that reflects a growing belief that the Fed is in no position to take its foot off the rate-hising brake. Rate hiking brake. I just made up a new word there. You know, Treasury yields tend to move with investors expectations for the fed's benchmark rate so investors these days can still get a little small cash flow returns on government bonds because treasuries unlike gold offer regular payouts and that's helped push many of these risk-averse investors from being gold bugs to being bond buyers now the u.s dollar as we've talked another haven is further complicating matters Global investors who look for a safe haven have been snapping up uh, the dollar, pushing near a 20-year high, and that's made gold that much more expensive for overseas buyers, which, of course, then reduces demand from that sector. And finally, investors have pulled money from precious metals-focused mutual funds and ETFs for 12 consecutive weeks now, that according to refinitiv Lipper data. And that's the longest week since a thirteen run of outflows that ended in May of twenty one. So with the gold, it's not a good idea. I mean it looks pretty, but that's the name of that song. You know, prices are down for financial assets, but expected returns are rising because that's how it is. You know, the the more you pay for something, the lower your expected return theoretically should be. On the other hand, the less, you know, the better the return. So it's trending in your favor at this point. As long as you're making regular contributions to a retirement account, a brokerage account, savings account, your situation has improved this year for that reason. Now, it doesn't feel like it because everybody's very distraught with the combination of high inflation and rapidly rising interest rates. Okay, well, then take a cautious approach. And what I mean by that, it's a time-to-own conservative, high-quality, dividend-paying stocks. These are the stocks that are holding up much more, much more better, forgive me, much better than the overall market. Don't get scared and sell. You know, have a sound game plan. That's it just takes time. And, you know, inflation is at 40 year highs. Interest rates rising at their fastest pace in history. But that's really kind of out of context. But technically it's right. Federal Reserve officials are actively rooting for the stock and housing markets to go lower because the Fed apparently is trying to orchestrate a recession. I don't know, again, that that's exactly accurate, but that's what some people perceive. And yet, the S&P is down just mm, 23% from its all-time highs. That's not even an average bear market. The average bear market, if we look at bear markets going back to 1946, Uh, The average percentage decline has been 32.7%, and by the way, just for what it's worth, the um, number of days that those bear markets lasted on average was 367, so about a year, although there are mm -hmm, three of them that lasted longer than that. Now, your investment strategy shouldn't change because there are bad days in the market. It shouldn't change because this year has been difficult. Every financial strategy should be designed to survive difficult times in the markets. That's why you have one. It's important to remember to focus on the right stuff during markets like these. And I believe that means kind of taking an arm's length view and focusing on the long run. So if you're an accumulator of financial assets, this volatility should be viewed as an opportunity to buy at lower prices, not a risk. If you've already accumulated financial assets, this volatility is just the other side of a decade-plus of really great gains in the U.S. stock market. Either way, remember, it's important to remember that volatility is just a feature of markets. There's nothing you can do to control that volatility. What you can control is how you react to the volatility. So if you keep that... Um, Under control, you'll live to uh, see the other end and not lose all your assets from making bad mistakes. Now, nine months into our slump, and again, if that's true, that means we've got another three or four months of bear market. The latest downdraft has many folks uh, kind of on edge, I guess. You know, they're still expecting the worst. Um, The pessimism of disbelief is uh, what it's been called by some folks. I think that's a pretty good title. You know, that's understandable given the disappointing and difficult year, but although it can be hard to appreciate now, history shows that bull markets are born on pessimism, and recent surveys suggest bearishness is at an extreme. Now, this doesn't pinpoint uh, when a recovery will begin or whether it's already underway. Nothing does, but we see widespread pessimism as a reason for optimism. Yet when investors, consumers, economists' moods are going into depths not seen in decades, uh, it helps to set the stage for a market recovery. not a precise timing tool by any means, and nothing is. Short-term moves are totally unpredictable, which is why you don't pay any attention to the talking heads, the headlines, the market news. See, uh, all these folks who come on TV, you know, they're saying, you should be in this sector, get out of that sector, go over here, do this, do that. They're all aimed toward short-term traders, uh, primarily those folks that run the big money. And again, as I think I said earlier, that they're compensated uh, based on quarterly results relative to benchmarks. And so they want to (laughs) perform as well as they can so they get paid. Uh, Pretty straightforward. Um, So, you know... But they have to respond on a short-term basis. We don't. As long-term investors, we can just stay with our quality and, uh, you know, listen to these guys talk while we just say, okay, that's interesting, and drive on. Um, You know, short-term moves are unpredictable. But near-universal bearishness does set the stage for expectations, undershooting reality to a great degree. You know, in 2008 was I first started doing this program. People would yell at me because I would be positive. And I said, you know, put a fork in it. The recession's over. And they're, how can you say that? You know, look at, you know, this and this and that. Well, there was a, the, the, that's a trailing indicator. The market's a leading indicator. So, you know, the problem is that all consumer surveys, including inflation expectations, are directly, deeply problematic. At the very least, they're backward looking, operating on a LA. lag consumer surveys and 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 the problem with those things is and those to include you know about what do you think about inflation going forward well they're problematic at the very least as i said they're they're backward looking it's it's a lagging thing you usually you know when when you're uh, getting the results from a survey the folks are basing it on you know What just happened? Uh, It's called recency bias. It leads people to make the exact same error anchored on what just happened uh, because there's no real way to know what's going to happen, right? So, you know, consider this. Questioning people as to their risk tolerance does not typically result in an accurate description of their true tolerance for drawdowns and lower returns. You certainly see that when you open accounts in our world uh, for folks when things are going well versus in current environments when things aren't exactly running smoothly. Um, Their uh, purported risk tolerance varies depending upon what's going on outside the door. So instead, you get a number of highly dependent responses based on the performance of the markets over the past three or six months. Uh, You know, risk tolerance hasn't changed really, but the short-term market environment does, and so in either case, they're irrelevant to their long-term investing needs. You know, imagine for a moment that the folks uh, queried by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York in inflation expectations behave any differently. No. I have a sneaking suspicion that inflation expectations are, in fact, overly dependent on those six-foot-tall numbers posted all across the country showing the prices of a commodity that used to be a very significant portion of the family budget, but today is a much smaller part of consumer spending. You know, With gas prices having fallen uh, for a record 98 consecutive days, no wonder inflation expectations have also fallen. And those, and gas is really just a small part of the consumer price index. So it's definitely misleading, but that's what folks focus on because it's right in front of them. You know, these tea leaf readers, the pundits, have offered no shortage of reasons as to the fact that more pain must be in store. Rising rates, Fed moves, the energy crisis in Europe, weakening earnings estimate. That kind of stuff. Lurking underneath all this is the assumption that complacent investors, everybody other than you folks who are listening, haven't factored these in. You know, with the primary evidence is that they have yet to what's called capitulate, toss in the proverbial towel. You know, uh, that is true enough, yet it's a stretch, I believe, to argue that this capitulation is uh, necessary for a recovery that investors have often given up near market lows doesn't mean they must or always do so. And we see a big reason why a mass exodus from stocks is unlikely this time around. And simply for this, if you sell your stocks, where do you go? Inflation looks set to eat cash alive. And again, gold is down far more than stocks since March. Commodities are broadly down too, um After uh, the Ukraine adjustment, Uh, even uh, the most traditional safe alternatives, bonds, are down double digits since peaking early uh, last year. And we aren't saying these assets won't recover. I think bonds decline is primarily sentiment fuel, but fear reigns there, making it an unattractive destination for those folks tempted to react emotionally to stocks declines. Now, investors have pulled much more money from bonds than stocks, believe it or not, much more consistently this year. That isn't shocking when you consider how fund flows work. They tend to follow returns. Bonds decline, though shallower than stocks, has been relatively steadier and lasted longer as these interest rates have started to move higher, seemingly leading to a steady stream of outflows. Stocks decline, by contrast. Well, they happen in short bursts, followed by fast rebounds, at least relatively speaking. And, and you know, if people are broadly fleeing bond markets and worldwide hang ringing and, and shirk-renting and all that other stuff over rising rates and inflation, even a bear market at one global bond index, then those fearful folks probably won't fo- flock there either. Investors inclined to give in the stock's decline don't seem likely to run to a market where people, or maybe even the same people, are perhaps giving up, and for those driven by fear, it doesn't seem likely they would exchange one scary asset for another. More likely, the lack of an attractive destination for fearful investors creates a sort of resigned paralysis, you know, kind of sighing and hanging on for no better alternative. Now, humans are hardwired to get more of what gives us security and pleasure and run away as fast as we can from those things that cause us pain. Seems reasonable, right? That behavior has kept us alive as a species. You mix that in with a desire to be in the herd, the feeling that there's safety in numbers, and you get a pretty potent cocktail. And when everyone else is buying, it feels as if we don't join them. We're going to get eaten by the financial version of a saber-toothed tiger. That's not a good idea. I mean, the saber-toothed tiger... Buy low, sell high. Be fearful when others are greedy. So on and so on. It's easy to be brave when stocks are going up, but when you put money on the line when nobody else seems to want to, and it takes actual courage and intestinal fortitude. You know, you're never going to buy the bottom. You're almost always going to regret it in the short term. But if you can take the pain, you're usually rewarded over the long term. And it's important to know that totally normal to feel fear and greed or be scared when the markets are scary. The fact that you feel those things just means you're human. So, okay. It's okay to feel it. But understand that acting on it will cause you, could cause you, significant financial harm. So, do whatever you need to not act on fear and greed. That could mean staying out of the kitchen, building guardrails, having a strategy, or even hiring an advisor. Whatever you need to do, just do it. Now, I want to add one thing quickly here, and that to um, hit up on uh, the I-bond again one more time as a safety feature. Now, when I, whenever an I-bond that's a treasury instrument is purchased, the treasury guarantees that the securities yield for the next six months. The current guaranteed rate is an annualized 9.62%. That's pretty dang good for a government bond. And that's based on the CPI-U from October 21 to March of 22. Those who buy an I bond this month will receive that yield until February of 23. After which they'll get another payout. So the current payout on a 15-month certificate of deposit at a bank or credit union, or whatever, about three and three-quarters percent. And unlike an I bond, a CD does not give its owner the right to continue to hold the security should rates move in its favor. So since uh, This continues to make I-bonds compelling for the near term. Although they carry 30-year maturity dates, which would definitely not make them a short-term investment, their owners have unusual flexibility. Whereas conventional bonds can't be redeemed early, uh, instead of being required to sell in the open marketplace, the Treasury will always exchange an I-bond for its par value if the investor has owned it for at least 12 months. So effectively, I-bonds possess whatever maturity rate you want, and whoever sells those I-bonds after holding them for less than five years must forfeit uh, three months' worth of interest. So just understand that. But they do have their quirks because they're designed for individuals as opposed to institutions. They can't be purchased in large quantities. They have to be done directly through the Treasury an In individual maximum is 10000 per year, but families can buy several times that amount because accounts can be established for each kid, for a spouse, as well as for businesses and living trust. Now, the, the bonds have to be held at and ordered through the Treasury, as I mentioned, and uh, is separated from another asset, uh, and the accounts cannot be mingled even within a family. So while they do allow you to buy $5,000 worth of additional bonds, I-bonds per year through your federal tax withholding, those bonds have to be in paper form rather than electronic. So there are a few catches, but they're still pretty dang good, have a great yield and, you know, are a good uh, safety place for at least a tiny bit of your money. Now, um, we have to go and... uh, I thank you very much for listening. Uh, This will do it for this week's edition, powered by the Opus 111 Group. And if you do have further questions or comments, please send us an email at info at opus111group.com, and I'll be happy to respond to your comments. Hope you have a great and productive week. We'll be back next Saturday with more market commentary. Again, thank you for listening. Join us again next Saturday morning at this same time for the financial insight, opinion, and perspective of Money Management with Mike Mayo. Have a question or comment? You can reach Mike at our website, opus111group.com.